Not everyone has the book, right? Nancy, you're muted, but do you need the book? You got the book. Everyone has the book? Clark? I think everyone has the book. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what we determined last time. Okay. So we are starting on page 97, the first full paragraph, which is sort of in the middle of the page, taken together. Let's see. I'm after Lori. Together, these five basic precepts of the, of the lay Buddhist mark out the boundaries of safe conduct. And safe Wait, oh, Clark, you're really quiet. In my, how about for other people? Yeah, I can't hear you. Let's see. This might be. Mike is on the camera. It's very. Are there any settings on here to change? There are settings on Zoom. So if you go to the preferences for Zoom, um, or if you go to the um, little microphone at the bottom of the screen and there's a little carrot next to it. If you click on that, there will be something that says audio settings. At the bottom. I see it. There will be a, like a, a pop-up menu. It should say audio settings down at the bottom. So select a microphone, select a speaker, and then at the bottom, audio settings. And then you want to, um, what I found is that you can't let it automatically adjust the microphone volume. You have to unclick that. Oh, uh, is this better? Much better. Yeah. better. Okay, yeah. That was, that's what it was. Yeah. I, I was looking for what I could change. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, what, I'm sorry, let me, you said, uh, Unclick the auto. So if you down at the bottom where there's a little microphone next right next to it to the right of it, there's a little carrot that points up. Right. If you click on that. Right. And you click on audio settings. Yes. You'll see there's a checkbox that says automatically adjust microphone volume. Correct. Unclick that. You don't want it checked. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know why, but it's just, it's, bad news. Okay. So I can see about it. <laughs> okay. Taking together these five basic precepts of the lay Buddhists, mark out the boundaries of safe conduct and set up the foundations for an honorable life. In order to abide by these precepts, we need, in addition to an intellectual understanding of their importance, a way of dealing with our own weaknesses. <laughs> The Buddha says that control of the senses is the basis for morality. The practical means by which we can avoid trouble and keep our resolutions. When we give unwise attention here and there, tarrying and tempting atmospheres, dwelling incautiously on the allure or repulsiveness of objects and ideas, we give craving or aversion or delusion a chance to boil up and overwhelm us. Thus, we should break the power of troubling sensations by regarding them with sharp mindfulness or by avoiding them altogether. Recognizing a weakness for lust, we should stay away from titillating entertainments. 
Recognizing a tendency toward anger, we should not put ourselves in a position to exchange provoking words. Recognizing a liability to confusion and delusion, we should keep away from bad companions and not suffer their influences. It is simple prudence to walk out of range of temptation. I, this is really fascinating for me to be hearing this now a week later and to be welcoming it. It was bothering me so much a week ago. And, and now as a diversion to what's going on in the world, it's just great. <laughs> Besides the careful avoidance of harmful courses of action, we should develop the four divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity until our morality, our sila, becomes mindful, undeviating, and natural. What begins as self-discipline eventually becomes self-transcendence. By restraining our unwholesome tendencies, we make possible the growth of wholesome tendencies. Just as when we, just as when weeds are pulled, flowers have room to grow. When we keep the precepts faithfully, even when it is very difficult to do so, we prevent the start of many unruly chains of errors. The mind becomes lighter, less subject to guilt and fear. Having a quieter conscience, not being preoccupied with fear of possible results of bad deeds, we become increasingly sensitive to the suffering of our fellow creatures, careful not to harm them, solicitous for their welfare. Kim. No, I think Lori. No, you're you're before me. I'm always after you. J K L. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Matt. For, for our own happiness and for the happiness of others, we should fulfill certain social obligations, certain practical religious duties. The Buddha see, sees in terms of important relationships between children and parents, teachers and pupils, wives and husbands, friends and friends, employers and employees, religious mendicants and householders. <coughs> For families and society to prosper, these relationships should be based on mutual kindness and reciprocal responsibilities. Children should revere and support their parents. Parents should instruct and guard their children and provide for their futures. The student should learn his lessons well and attend on his teacher with, with respect. The teacher should take an interest in the student seeing to his well-being in addition to his education. Wives and husbands should be faithful to one another, protecting the family wealth, doing their work with goodwill. Friends should treat each other with generosity, kindness, and courtesy. Also, they should comfort and protect one another when misfortunes come. Employers should see to the welfare of their employees by allocating, allotting work, wages and benefits fairly and remembering to give bonuses from time to time. 
<laughs> Employees in turn should honestly and diligently carry out their tasks. The household, you know, we, we, we hardly ever see this clear of a description exactly what a good person would do. Right, right. The householder should act kindly toward those who have undertaken the mendicant religious career, supplying them with the necessities of life. And they, for their part, should instruct and guide the householder in beneficial principles that lead to happiness here and in future lives. Buddha says that in protecting oneself, one protects others, and in protecting others, one protects oneself. A notable quality of honorable people who have taken this wisdom to heart is their willingness to act contrary to immediate self-interest, to forgo profit, and even to accept loss in devotion to a higher um, ideal. The slack and the dull do not understand how someone might pass up a quick dollar that is a little bit tainted or take on a responsibility that could be easily shirked or choose a moral principle over material gain. The attentive, however, have another way of seeing and realize that principle is the most concrete thing in the impermanent universe, that which can be relied on when mundane provisions run out. An honorable person remains quite aware of his or her own interest, but views it with deliberation and gives thought to the future effects of present deeds, remembering that future blessings will result from following good standards now. For example, consider the situation of a woman who finds herself inconveniently and unhappily pregnant. When confidence in Buddhist principles has not been firmly established, confusion and fear might dominate the mind making abortion seem an acceptable option. Nowadays, millions of women, perhaps over their private qualms, decide to undergo this procedure, the details of which few probably would wish to con contemplate closely. But is it moral or honorable? Unquestionably, it is contrary to the first precept to refrain from killing. Taking the life of a human being in the womb seriously violates the moral principle cannot be disguised by euphemisms. One knows one's intention, though not where it might lead, not what the repercussions might be. To carry out this act, or to have it carried out, is to turn away grievously unwisely from the path of benevolence. Intentional action, comma, has consequences for the doer, irrespective of his or her preferences, according to the quality of the action. Therefore, mildness and mercy will promote future well-being and great advantage, while the taking of life, even for seemingly convincing reasons, will increase suffering. The functioning of karma is an unconscious process of nature, whereby these give rise to appropriate results in the way that a planted seed naturally gives rise to a certain kind of food. Bearing this in mind, and bearing in mind the sweet, spreading compassion that is the very presence of the Dhamma, one who is really intent on future welfare should generate harmless, peaceful, kind thought, and accept with 
fortitude, the undesired and temporary condition of unwelcome pregnancy, and thereby take a step toward real security and happiness. A wise heart is one that listens, not to the clangor of passion and the den of ego, but to the calm and calming voice of Dhamma, which speaks out of the silence of mindful contemplation. What self is here that must be indulged, that must take offense, defend territory or revenge injuries? Real honor cannot be sullied by another and thus cannot justify fury and vengeance. It consists in love of the good and reverence for the noble being we might someday become, the Arya Pugala, the noble person whose nobility comes not from birth or station, but from worthy deeds and pure thoughts. The natural ally of honor is thus not pride, a defilement that shackles and corrupts the mind, but humility, the understanding that because we are not perfect and because the jungle of samsara is full of danger, we must strive to find safety in the cultivation of virtue and wisdom. Because circumstances continually change, we cannot predict our future and must behave with becoming modesty so that we may earn release from suffering someday. We should calmly recognize the wrongs we have done, neither excusing ourselves nor indulging in useless self-castigation and pessimism, and make sure we do not repeat them. Every day offers us fresh chances to redirect our lives through conscious, wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. All of us have, through the infinity of pastime, performed innumerable good and bad deeds that variously influence the restless running stream of our being. Whatever one regrets over past offenses, one, we can always carry on the noble and immediate work of purification, letting fresh springs of clear water gush in to bathe and soothe us. Having observed and pondered the causes and effects of deeds, we should be ever zealous in doing good deeds, knowing that an accumulation of these certainly will work out to our own happiness in the future. Awareness of our own errors should help us to prevent the building of conceit and to become more understanding of the errors of others. Countless living beings stumble in the darkness of samsara and we among them. Awareness of the virtues of others, in addition, will shine an edifying light on our own problems. We are not the only ones longing for the good and quiet. Inspiring examples of honor and nobility can see, be seen all around us. Anne, you want to go ahead and go? Oh, uh, we're okay. starting alphabetically, and yeah. you should have gone before Clark if you'd been here. Uh, or you know what? Why don't I? One I zip in on the next round okay. because I don't know where we are yet. Yeah. Okay. But thank you. Thank you for we're offering at, that. We're at the bottom of page 100. Honor does not require us a bellicose objection to the actions of others. If the vote goes against us, if our opinions are discounted, if we fail to get our way, we are not thereby entitled to behave, behave like spoiled children. 
Rather, we should keep as much dignity and poise when we are thwarted as when we are accommodated. We cannot win all contests and we cannot expect that the world will conform to our personal moral vision. We should seek concord always and compromise when we can, but we must see the limits of compromise and go the way of Dhamma quietly, even alone, even if that ruffles others. So I have a, a question about that. Um, he seems to be being pretty moralistic himself. Yes. And then he tells us not to be. <laughs> oh, there's Donna. Hey, Donna. Yes, and then he tells us not to be. That's correct. Huh. Wait, where do you see that, that he's saying not to be? Uh, the world, we should seek con uh, concord. Op uh, let's see here. Um, we fail to get away. We are not thereby entitled to behave like school children. Children, rather, we should keep as much dignity and poise when we are thwarted as when we are accommodated. We cannot win all contests, and we cannot expect that the world will conform to our personal moral vision. But he seems to expect us to conform to his personal moral vision. At least, I mean, we're reading his book, so. Yeah. I don't think he would say that it was his vision. It's Buddha's vision. It's the, it's the, dar it's the Dhamma. It's the Dhamma, is what yeah. he would say. Yeah. And I don't think he has an expectation about that. But he's talking about, um, you know, he has a, um, I guess I would call this a Buddhist fundamentalist view. So it's a very um, strict interpretation of the Buddhist teachings. Um, and uh, it has a kind of Puritan streak in it. You'll notice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it definitely feels that way sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So it's it's important to know that this this particular point of view, this perspective, exists also in Buddhism. Right. Part of what makes it hard to say anything about Buddhists believe this or Buddhists do that, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I find when someone who doesn't practice tells me what Buddhism is, it, it always feels to me like it's totally off. <laughs> yeah. But they sometimes, could be right in some way. Sometimes it's unrecognizable, you know, like where you're, you're going, no, wait, <laughs> nothing like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes what gets dropped out of the equation is um, any sense of ethical foundations. And so that's kind of what he's talking about here is the ethical foundations of Buddhism. So often, you know, I, I had a friend who was cheating on her uh, partner and uh, she told me that she just does what she feels because that's Buddhist, right? And um, I, you know, it's really hard to know what to say to that. No, it's, it's not Buddhist. It's, it's just conditioned thinking. It's more conditioned thinking. So I think what he's, he's trying to point out, there's, you know, there's more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. She's violating one of the one of the precepts according yeah. to more than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more than one. Many more than one, as I pointed out to her. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do appreciate this this because we, we get the 
the Diane Rosettos of the world and the Joko Becks and the Norman Fishers, and those are much more American versions of yeah. this. And, yeah. And seem a little more palatable, I guess, because I'm an American. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, this is, this is coming from the Theravadan perspective, so there's mm -hmm. not much leeway in it, you know? Right. Um, like the, the view on abortion. I mean, I wrote something about um, a Buddhist perspective, a Buddhist perspective on abortion because so many people had asked me about that. Um, but there's no, I'm, that, that's not the Buddhist perspective. And I would say I'm on a different um, uh, part of the continuum than he is on that issue. Yeah. But there's a difference because you would acknowledge that people could have different views where he's writing as if there's one view and this, it's mine. Well, no, you can have different views. They're just not Buddhist. <laughs> Wait, your view, you don't think that your view is the only Buddhist view of, with, no, in terms right, of abortion? Yeah, I do. Yeah, where he, where he does, I think. Yeah, he does. But you can, you can have different views. You just wouldn't be a Buddhist in his view. I just want to say in his view, yeah, right. But this guy is American. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. He's as American as Norman Fisher and Joko Beck and everybody else. He, just, he changed his name when he went to Yeah, he's the just monastery. a fundamentalist, you know. Yeah. Yep. Well, certainly in this chapter, it seems that way. You know, it's, it's interesting because he's not so... Uh, strict that he that he doesn't have this poetic engagement with nature, right? So then you have these chapters where it's like it's pure poetry, and you think, oh, this is so amazing, and yeah. So you see these two sides of this person. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I don't recall the Buddha ever talking about honor. I think this is a, <laughs> I hate to say a blue level thing, but it's a blue level thing. <laughs> okay. I think that's where we are by safe. Who's reading? I think you are, unless Donna wants to go in. Okay. We'll by safeguarding, is that where we are by safeguarding? Yeah. 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 By safeguarding our honor, we may gain a justified reputation as trustworthy people of upright character, which will make it easier for us to get along in the complex complexities of daily life. By attention to honor, we can bring our own best thoughts <coughs> of clarity and generosity through to action, giving ourselves and others cause for gladness. Moreover, we can enjoy the peace of knowing that, even if only in small ways, we have beaten back unworthy intentions, held our faith, and advanced in virtue. But beyond these benefits, honor is precious because consciously or not, we are daily adding to a stream of actions, of comma, that will be our support and that will mark our future. The Buddha teaches us that our own deeds will be our inheritance and our refuge. They should therefore be such, such that we can live on and die on with a tranquil mind. By 
raising up a sense of honor, we begin to lift our ideals and the trend of our habitual conduct from the level of perishing material to the higher, finer plane where the holy ones have stood and where we, where we too might someday stand. Chapter 11, A Glimpse of a Crane. Seen through a window, as our bus rounds a curve, a crane flaps into the air above misty fields. Its wings flash splendidly in the morning light, and its body seems correspondingly to dwindle as it catches the rhythm of its kind and sails higher in gray-green space. A brief moment of thoughtless grace, but no one we should but no one we should swallow whole out of hunger for beauty, but not one we should swallow whole out of hunger for beauty. There is more there than color and motion, more to be apprehended mindfully. Look how grand and sure those white wings are, how trivial by comparison, the meager body they support, they transport. What carries what? Does the bird own the wings or the wings the bird? If the crane does not care for philosophy, yet we must, for we see what it does not, that it will end as a whole in a few articles, deepened and forgotten in its time, having only drawn some instinctive patterns and perhaps hatched some rules of young. But now it hatches pleasure and perplexity in the mind of a watcher. Nature imbues such energy, grace, and beauty in creatures who will come to nothing. It launches them splendidly in an upward arc. Then indifferently lets them fall to scatter their offspring who will helplessly run through the same speechless teeth and troubling sequence. Oh, I think you mute. Thank you, Paul. But you're muted. Oh. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> the individual's creature scarcely matters to nature. Observers have long realized this. But deeper reflection tells us that the species as well scarcely matters. What nature cares for, if we can personify it for a moment, is no particular class or individual, but only the throb of cause and effect. Only a reflexive continuity, a pulsation of appetite, and a growth expressed through a multitude of forms. In this cycle, without end, the crane serves the wings, and the wings serve the crane, and the wings in the body of the laboring animal exert themselves ultimately in service of tana, craving, the primal obsession and fountainhead of suffering. There is a rush to live, to experience, that shudders through the particular animal, but there is no understanding and no inbuilt purpose beyond the Imbecil, imbecilic repetition of birth, aging, and death. 
The animal wants life and sensation and the satisfaction of its hunger. And it gets these and loses those monotonously. So resolve the wheel of existence. Sometimes when we study the animal world, we entertain thoughts like these. Animal life seeming so circumscribed, pointless and futile. But we are slower to see our own life in such terms, even though we have the intellectual power to do so. It galls and worries us, of course, even on this gentle morning when a crimson sun dissolves the mist and the bus swings us from one adventure to another. Nature deals with us more liberally, gives us the skill to escape predators and keep ourselves regularly fed and variously entertained. Yet still, we are born and die in strife. Like these birds, we perform marvels in the air of imagination for a little time, amazing one another by swooping from one empty space to another. But the performative soon ends, performance soon ends. The props and masks are put away and we must surrender the energy of our bodies and minds to an unguessable future. We can leave children behind, but that is a thin consolation, for although they may still stand fresh and hopeful when we are spent, can we seriously imagine that their own predicament will be any different? Shall we put off on them the task of figuring out the world? We have given up. Mm -hmm. Rather dim view of children, probably from someone who doesn't have any. <laughs> Um, we former children, in the rush of going someplace we cannot this moment remember, smell the wet, sweet air and wonder at the white bird rising before us like an omen or a challenge or a symbol of our yet unperfected life. What have we come to? Our parents once stood over our sleep in the late evening, fatigued and sad and full of care willing us into a future of brightness and safety and we unknowing only sighed and dreamed of wings and kept on dreaming through the deceitful years and now expelled from childhood and loaded with our own duties and regrets hardly awake even now looking about with pathetic expectation <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> We, yeah, we catch this rosy light, this minute drama through the window of a bus. There it is, the lovely, fearful vision of what we are, and behind it, undeniable, the transporting thought of what we might yet be. We have slept so long, frowning, afflicted, letting ignorance work upon us. Dreamily we marshal forces of mind, we flourish talents, we design and create, all the time foolishly believing that these abilities belong to us and they are properties and organs of our particular self. Really they are the wings of the crane, just temporary powers bearing us forward and back in obedience to desire until sickness and age abolish the union. History and our own experience at length testify to the baffling truth that the mysteries of existence cannot be solved just by cogitating, by flapping and flying without guidance. 
reason can take us far and indeed we must have it to make progress toward deliverance but to but to traverse the darkest canyons of ignorance we need the direct light of dhamma which arises from stillness and mindfulness we have to observe patiently without bias or fantasy until the accumulated force of wholesomeness of, of wholesome conditions sparks the flash of insight the genuine direct knowing of things just as they exist on this rare morning there seems no sense in postponing needful work so perhaps a brave and forthright way of dealing with this seeming donna. what I forgot donna yes. oh I'm sorry donna i forget <laughs> okay on this rare morning, there seems no sense of work. So perhaps a brave and forthright way of dealing with the seeming futility of nature is simply to acknowledge it and get on to fresher business. All collections of matter will disintegrate. Imagined egos exist to be superseded, left behind. Thus, if we persist in identifying ourselves with impermanent mental states, or works, or possessions, or beauties near or far, we must subscribe as well to their blemishes and defects. There is no freedom here, only dismal bondage. And I would like to throw in parenthetically, what happened to Joy? Is it Mudita? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know where he's going with this. I mean, is he gonna take us out of this uh, bleak existentialist vision he's got? I guess we'll mush on and see. You've got a page and a half to get to it. <laughs> we think, we assume there is an I here, but deep beneath the concept, craving goes on, bending our faculties to its own dim end, which is just another frothing of sensation. The fictitious empty I eddies along in the stream of desire. No security at all, no strength, no help to anybody. But if we refuse to trust our weight to that foam, if we renounce our claim to the aggregates of body and mind, we can perceive the world in a promising light as a rich field where freedom can grow. If we can acknowledge the repetitive, unsatisfactory nature of this samsara, this concatenation of births, we can begin to live deliberately conscious of a higher goal. So many ages on the great wheel, so many ages on the great wheel, so much death and forgetting, so many promises unkept and foolishness compounded, and the landscape of opportunity slips away. In another moment, the bus will carry us past the glowing sink, and yet arrested here in a splinter of time, feeling the cold metal of the window frame, hearing the rattling engine beneath us, we contemplate this one bird, this flying emblem of destruction and renewal, and trying for once to look on the impermanent without greed and on beauty without greed. Here is the living Dhamma summoning us to deliverance. If only we have the breath and the faith to go. To go. We need not give ourselves up to hedonism or despair or irrationality. The Buddha teaches that craving is the source of our cyclic, cyclic, is it cyclic? Cyclic. 
cyclic pain. The cause of repeated death and birth. If we see that pointless, if we can see that pointless, that pointless round in the crane's flight, if we can glimpse it in the flux of human generations, in the lines of our own faces, should we not turn with a good will to the Buddha's remedy? At the beginning of the list of factors of the Noble Eightfold Path stands right view, whose presence suggests that there may be such a thing as wrong view, to which we hapless dreamers long have been addicted. Without training and without systematic contemplation, we see the world, our busy lives, and the morning flight of birds as enduring and reliable and full of self. They are not so. All conditioned things bear the three marks of existence, impermanence, suffering, or unsatisfactory, and unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. To perceive these, to have right view, is not to give in to gloom, but rather to relieve the strain of upholding a delusion and to approach the splendor of the unconditioned. Are we to follow that crane in admiration only to another marsh, to wait and stop at fish and forget the sky? Or another bird, those wings still with purpose, clumping above the swarm of custom and dreams, born with imperfections, with understanding bent and ignorance rampant. Still we can hear the Dhamma, still look up to the flashing realities and learn the truth they bear. What then shall we make of this human world? We, we, have the, we have the chance to answer our parents' hopes with more than wealth or position or friend diplomas to come of age in virtue, to wake to reality, to conquer fear, and to bequeath to our own children, whose sleep we guard, knowledge as well as love. This human life baffling intersection of good and evil, battleground of thought, affords us a chance. Mortal as the cranes and fishes, we still have minds that can thwart our, our presumed destiny, shorten our lonely wandering. However uniform or sorrowful our remembered past, our unremembered chain of lives, our future and our children's future are not written yet. Turning our thoughts to the good, reading the lessons of nature, listening to the Dhamma, we begin to shape our destiny. The window of this bus is not the only one that opens to the light. It is the prepared mind that meets with the miraculous that does not need to wait for symbols. All forms, pleasing and unpleasing, manifest helpful truths. And by detachment and attention, we can see them, can come to understand suffering and the end of suffering, the darkness and the light beyond it. Not frightened, not infatuated, we may pass between the wretched and the heavenly without becoming entangled. This is the voyage to ultimate freedom and liberation. The crane will straggle to its end in the weeds. But why should we despair? It rises this morning with white wings on the melting air. 
We can look and let it alone. Ungrasped, it flies more beautifully. Chapter 12, The Private Version. If we are new to the study of Buddhism and are for the first time becoming acquainted with its analysis of this flawed world, we might wonder if traditional Buddhism is a little too somber or too quiescent or passive and thus perhaps needs some modification or revision to make it fully appealing to us. The can, uh, canonical, canonical uh -huh. emphasis on suffering and mental purification, so rare and unsettling for our generation, prompts various doubts. Shouldn't we be more positive in our outlook? Shouldn't we emphasize the beauty and delight in the world? And is there a need to bring in the whole body of, of the Dhamma when the practice of meditation, together with a few general principles, might suffice for our benefit in busy, dazzling, and demanding society? Always in the human creature, two longings contend, the longing for pure truth and the longing for individual security. They are seen to be separate and we know what choice, sometimes with private regret, we usually make. But the Buddha teaches that samsara, the round of becoming, seethes with suffering and burns with greed, hatred and delusion, within and without, above and below, while happiness and escape and the lasting security are possible by way of the Noble Eightfold Path. What can we do with such a disturbing teaching? We can follow it in theory and practice toward deliverance, or we can ignore it, mask it, blend it with our private preferences. Anxious to believe in a benign, harmonious universe, we might train the deep implications of the Dhamma and try to find security in the practice of meditation simply as a spiritual avocation or an exercise in self-adjustment. But as many meditators have discovered, Benefits do not automatically result from the employment of mechanical technique alone. Understanding of the world requires attention, analysis, and clear awareness. Buddhism presents a complete framework for investigation with morality to lighten and protect the mind, with the concentration to assemble its powers, and with wisdom to discern and expel unwholesome qualities. I just want to say that if this was the first book I ever read about Buddhism, I would not be here today. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway. <laughs> in all mental training, in all daily life, in fact, the seeker must arouse energy and use it mindfully and skillfully. The systematic setting up of mindfulness, satipatthana, results in vipassana, insight into impermanent suffering and non-self. The practice presses toward liberation, the ultimate security based on this insight, always toward renunciation, not attachment, toward equanimity, not passion, toward purification, not carelessness. Obviously, this is a difficult program. Most people prefer to devote themselves 
to the satisfactions and rewards of the customary social life. And the Buddha probably never expected otherwise. But he surely meant, at the least, that those of us actively involved in the busy world should not forget the ideal, the pure vision of the higher way of striving and should push toward it whenever possible. <clears throat> Yet sometimes, under the weight of habit, we might be inclined to lower our aspirations and even to neglect the ideal in favor of an eager admiration for the world. Perhaps we try to believe that meditation will serve its purpose if it enables us to tolerate our shortcomings or to appreciate more exquisitely the objects of the senses or to obtain tranquil feelings. Certain meditation and other aspects of the Dhamma smooth out and ease ordinary life here and now, but by quieting mundane desire rather than by gratifying it, and the path rises gradually but steadily into finer atmospheres and worthier thoughts requiring of the pilgrim faith and perseverance. A good teacher disrupts his students' vain caprices. We are glad enough to listen, yet probably we would prefer to hear that which would bolster our own half-formed vision of how the world ought to be. Perhaps we want to hear that as long as we keep a meditative and generally amiable frame of mind, we can do pretty much as we wish, drifting along casually through life. But the Buddha teaches that our intentional deeds are significant and therefore require attention. That deeds growing out of greed, hatred, and delusion are unwholesome and produce painful results regardless of our wishes or rationalizations. Or we may want to hear that moral precepts are merely admir admirable, general ideals and not strictly binding on us. But the Buddha regards morality as the indispensable companion to concentration and wisdom, as well as a distinguishing mark of the wise. Or we may want to become comfortably reconciled to our own problematic personalities, but the Buddha teaches that we harbor deep and rehensible strains which we should clean away, stains that we should clean away. Or we may want to hear that despite our secret sorrows, the universe we live in is ultimately sublime and perfect, but the Buddha reveals it as a frightful cycle of being born and dying that offers no permanent security. Thus, with regard to what we might want, he is a most contrary and unaccommodating teacher. Yet the Buddha is always timely and helpful because he speaks directly to abiding human needs, knowing what will actually be of use. In teaching the truth, he always stands free of the whims and flutters of fashion. If his powerful focus on suffering is inappropriate for our times or tastes, and so is liberation, because there can be no liberation without the prior knowledge that there is bondage. And a spiritual titillation is all we can expect of religion undertaken frivolously for trivial ends. If we disregard the troubling and provocative teachings of the Buddha and mix the, rem the, the remainder with our private self-comforting notions, we will come up with a bland something, not a philosophy, 
not a religion, surely, that requires of us nothing we are not already willing to give, and teaches us nothing of value, and removes not a jot of our pain. Okay, I'll just say, I feel this is like, okay, I'm, I, I'm like a total lightweight then. <laughs> it's just a, there's just like, a, it's just like, you're either like doing it this very, very fundamental way, or you're learning nothing of value. <laughs> doing it wrong, Anne. <laughs> I'm just doing it wrong, I guess. Yeah. But there's still hope. There's still hope. Yeah. Like I get stricter with my practice. <laughs> Accustomed to easy improvisation, we may shy away from traditional Buddhist doctrine because the idea of an ancient fixed formulation suggests intimidating dogma that we will be expected to believe and obey without food. The classic Dhamma, however, is visible in our own experience, in formal meditation and in daily life, but we can hardly verify something we have not understood in the first place. We can only experience a mass of sensation without knowledge of ends as well as means. Buddhist philosophy and meditation may become just another dread Ready, ready research for stimulation. Well, <clears throat> what we resist so passionately deep in our minds is the truth that the very reflex of wanting and grasping by which we have lived is a barb and a torment. While we may disapprove of others' desires, we would like to believe that our own desires are reasonable and legitimate and that life is or could be wonderful, joyful, and full of satisfaction if we could just relax sufficiently, could make some small, painless adjustments in perception. Nevertheless, an, an intellectual disquiet troubles us, and religious aspiration erupts from our fear that we are living in a delusive security. We try to be positive in our outlook, but the course of nature is evident not is evidently not improved by our commentary if we tell ourselves yes this is good when it is not good when we are full of grievances have we accomplished anything lacking an, un an understanding of suffering and its cause we find ourselves doggedly smiling but feeling no smile within the buddha saw that life on the human plane is an uncertain a combination of pleasure and pain. He asserted that what there was of enjoyment in the world he had understood, and what there was of misery in the world he had understood, and furthermore, what there was of escape from the world he had also understood. It is wrong to say that Buddhism teaches that everything in the world is entirely miserable and painful. Obviously, much gladness, pleasure, grace, and good exist. And more can arise if the conscientious person makes the right efforts. What can be said is that everything is of a worldly nature is dukkha, tenuous, ultimately unsatisfactory and unreliable, and that in reaching unwisely for the desired or fleeting, or fleeing unwisely from the undesired, we continue to flounder and defeat ourselves. 
The Buddha's path is an even path, not swerving to either extreme of greed or aversion, but leading out of confusion to freedom. We are invited by the Buddha and the sages of old to take strong dhamma for our ills. But if we prefer our self-made imaginary concoctions, that is our privilege. If we go on to think them curative, we will be pursuing an easy and familiar course. Certainly, in the acquisitive hustle of modern society, self-restraint is not popular. Renunciation is not popular. Moral discipline is not popular. They sound constricting, and indeed, they are to base intentions. But they are the limbs and powers of genuine dhamma and the bringers of contentment Oh, and the bringers of contentment. Real peace of mind does not come without effort, and that effort must be guided not by fantasy, but by understanding of what really yields lasting benefit. Sometimes in the midst of self-doubt and anxiety, we might tend to think that the original Dharma was suitable for ancient India, but that a modernized and adapted version would be better for our own personal circumstances in this sophisticated age. But this is to assume that Dhamma is a historic expression and that modern Dhamma should match modern predilections and accommodate modern wishes. It is reassuring, perhaps, to think that religion might be more or less shaped to our taste, that we can pick it that we can pick up agreeable beliefs here and there and wear them as long as they please us but the buddha teaches dhamma as a universal description not bound by time or distance and if we are to seriously investigate it and make use of it we must confront the question is humanity's mortal situation essentially any different now than from the past. Certainly the people of the Buddha's time had to face old age sickness and death as we do, and were no more eager than we are, than we, to recognize the extent of suffering. But they found refuge and cheer in the Dhamma, so much so that they passed on the teaching to their descendants, enabling it to survive th through these many centuries. If after the Buddha declared, or excuse me, if, as the Buddha declared, craving is the origin of suffering, then its eradication is and will be the solution to the problem, regardless of external conditions. If the noble truths of suffering and the origin of suffering still lie beneath the appearance of things, then so must the truth of the cessation of suffering and the truth of the noble eightfold path itself. This seems plain enough, yet because of the influence of our entrenched habits of thought, we might be reluctant to dwell on this grand thing. For easy digestion, a private version of Dhamma might seem preferable to us, one that pays perhaps somewhat less attention to the central problem of suffering and more to what we hope are the advantages of, of appreciating the world without worrying over much about our own religious uncertainty and moral responsibility. We, oops. we know we have weaknesses and failings, 
but we would much rather treat them as minor matters we can tolerate and forget. Naturally, we need some self-respect and hope for the, for the good to come. And certainly we must recognize our present limitations in the sense that a workman must make do with the materials he has to work with, not despairing over their imperfections, but supinely tolerating our own foolishness and error is tantamount to revolving, resolving not to improve ourselves. Modern society, moreover, enchanted with superficial material things, effectively encourages a perpetual search for novel, novel experience. <coughs> a hasty will to grasp, sample, and savor anything within reach with little concern for danger or real advantage. We ought not, however, to be so reckless, craving being quick enough already to overrun contemplations. contemplation. Anyway, with our senses avidly functioning, we can hardly help contacting the world or meeting a multitude of interesting impressions. In the meantime, we have chronic sorrows and pains <coughs> we need to get rid of, and fluttery enthusiasms for one thin inspiration after another only squander energy and delay the, the necessary confrontation with ignorance, craving, and aversion within our own minds. Are we really discovering or only dreaming and improvising? As practitioners of the Dhamma, we can rely on mindfulness to open the way to knowledge by exposing all ideas, experiences, and emotions to a revealing light by showing them in their unadorned condition so we can deal with them safely. We need not only to observe bad tendencies, not only to acknowledge their presence, but also to resist them and conquer them, acting with right effort not merely relaxing into the dim and hazy hope that they <coughs> will vanish if left alone. We must admit the fact that there are things wrong with us, defilements, imperfections, hindrances, that no amount of rationalization and self-affirmation will cure, and that left in place will continue to pain us and deprive us of peace. When, when, therefore, we turn to religion for relief from hurt, fear, and confusion, we need more than tremulous hopes for our own betterment. We need a calm, unbiased vision of what is actually happening when we intend, what, when we intend and act. We need to hear the ring of bedrock truth, the uplifting Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. When we are doubtful, wondering how to find the energy to observe and expel defilements within us and how far we might venture into the Dhamma as a living faith, it helps especially to entertain the thought of death. <laughs> this guy does a lot of that. <laughs> the Buddha recommended the contemplation on death. Maran Anansutsati. Maranansutsati as bringing high reward and blessing. He advised meditating monks to reflect at the 
close of day or in the morning on the many possibilities for sudden death, and then to consider, are there still found in me unsubdued evil, unwholesome things which, if I should die today or in this night, would lead me to misfortune? If such things are found, then one should use one's utmost determination, energy, exertion, perseverance, steadfastness, mindfulness, and clear comprehension in order to subdue these evil and unwholesome things. Anguttara Nikaya, the 874. Note that we are to subdue, note that we are to subdue them, not tolerate them dreamily or fatalistically. In time, all artifices will fall and, we'll, and we will see whether our gains are real or not. If our practice has been a mere indulging of our favorite illusions, the benefit will turn out to be nil. Therefore, as mortal beings, we had best be sure we have understood as well as experienced and acted rightly out of that understanding. It should be clear from this that the Dhamma is not passive. It is a rousing, bloodening message challenging us to shut up the group and fear we have suffered so long. This message invigorates the mind, whereas our private versions of truth tend to lose and stultify. The long honor, ever fresh Dhamma needs no division, no revision to move the heart and guide the conduct of a man or a woman today, because this is, it is the un the abiding essence of goodness and peace, which the Buddha kindly taught for the welfare of living beings. It is independent of time, independent, independent of fashion, no serving the tastes of any age, but spelling out in plain terms the nature of the universe and the way to overcome sorrow. Like a current cool water, it pulls through our minds, freshening our thoughts, urging us on to countries yet unexplored. In the end and in the beginning too, if we could see it, truth and security are inseparable. When we really wish to perceive truth, the underlying nature of things, we must be prepared to listen and watch in silence, opinions put aside. We must give up our spurious comforts and delusions and begin wonderful and exceptional and instead find out where we really stand and where we have yet to go. Then we might gradually put on a security of wisdom. Though the mind may not yet be pure, still we may know it as it is with equanimity and not be unduly upset. Here in real progress, here is real progress along the path where the work to be done is always more exacting and more rewarding than strain through skies of wishful illusion. Here on the factual earth, now, as before, the winds may blow cold, but they may also blow clean. So let us shake the dust from our coats and our minds, bear the weather, and read truth in the original. Okay. 13. An Open View Most of us believe that there is more to see, to perceive, than what we now behold. 
and that by some refinement of our senses or some revelation of nature itself, we might push out our horizons and do away with doubt. If we can comprehend sciences and arts, earn our living with skill, manage household and family, should we not be able, given the chance, to get at least some idea of our own position, speed, and destiny in the cosmos? We are frustrated, it seems, by a haze of distortions billowing before our minds and preventing any open and free view. Out at the rim of sense, things are forever blurring into abstraction, slipping off into the great unaccounted for. The intellect is balked by this haze, and the heart as well. We want to see because we want to understand. We want to understand because, by instinct, if nothing else, we believe understanding to be the key to the heart's release. Yet the world out there remains woefully indistinct, and understanding eludes us for all the grabs and pounces of our imagination. We consult authorities, we dither over theories, we make pilgrimage to those upon those spots where we hope the haze might thin out and truth, whatever that is, might shine through. Mostly, we retire wearily to our den to rub our sore eyes and heads and glumly complain that whatever is out there is unreachable. We grow older in the suspicion that life is defeating us. A helpful fund of wisdom, easy to overlook, may be found nearby, just across the road really, accessible to anyone who will exert himself. It waits there in any season, in all weathers, but let us now, for the sake of example, go there while autumn is fast sliding off the precipice. Is that precipice of winter? Precipice. Thank you, precipice. Sliding off the precipice of winter. Let us go without special expectation, with senses simply alert, into the park or the meadow or the forest beyond the farm, where beauty was saluted and forgotten weeks ago and we can stroll the leaf-drifted paths in silence under somber branches and think about what has become of the exuberance of summer and fall. For a few days when the fall color was at its fullest, people brought out cameras and spent an hour looking for picturesque arrangements. But all that is over and done now, the woods denuded, the earth <clears throat> growing colder, nature withdrawn and empty of fun. But for the thinker, the prober of mysteries, it is a good time, because the dreaminess of summer has blown away, the eye can dart past the ornaments of things, and even, perhaps, through the smoke of confusion to the heart of some fact. <coughs> Let us see what there is to see. We have been here before, have we not? It helps to compare present time and past time. A one-time visitor to a spot may harvest an insight or two, but chances improve for those who know a place and can remark uh, its gross or subtle changes through seasons and years. So then, in this bright but chilly afternoon, we come not as strangers but as occasional visitors, and the forest stretches before us, the same and not the same. We have hardly stepped from the streets and fields into the trees 
when the curious impression sweeps over us. The woods have expanded, but in summer was a green secret vault branching into shady corridors is today a long hilly stretch of stiff trees and silence. It is no mystery, yet a revelation still. Do we look upon the same country? The reference points are the same, the dips in the path that brought us here, a fractured rock, an ancient beech tree, but the indivisible whole locked in our summer memory now spreads out before us as only a, remind, a remainder. We look, as it were, behind the family of the play at the rough boards and worn out draperies, which held up the illusion of a self universe. Now that the theater's roof has taken the stuff of illusions, um, has fallen, the stuff of illusions lies revealed on the frigid earth in the keen, dispassionate light. We see with surprise the stumps, stones, gullies, and bumpy ground on which the floating green was founded. What captured our attention in summer were the scents, the seductive tints, the waving leaves and grasses, the singing nebulas of insects, the, the spider webs strung glittering through sassafras and maple. We gave little attention then to rock, wood, and primitive dirt, taking the dressed up scene whole in ignorant delight. But now the sunlight brilliantly cutting through leafless branches shows us our error. In summer and resplendent fall, we hunted truth but met only the sixfold chaos of ignorance compounded by sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought. We took what we perceived as the, green, the given, the substantial panorama through which to brood our way to enlightenment, and we wondered why it would not yield to our passionate gaze and, and feed our obscure hunger. We thought that only by a more gluttonous swallowing could we digest truth, not suspecting that we got mostly air, not knowing that even the smallest drops of wisdom must be patiently distilled from reality. And the seeking mind must pierce the deceptive play of forms to the single glove or board or scrap of drapery. Understanding depends on seeing clearly in the spiritual sense and seeing clearly depends on removing the obstacles within ourselves. That mist of distortion that seems to roll out there is a, in the distant really rolls in us, filming our eyes, corrupting our thought. It is ignorance, anger, bias, passion, foolish lust for this and that. <coughs> Errors that make us read into the world tremendous themes of tragedy or beauty or harmony. Wrapped in myths, mist, we see accordingly, we see according to our wants and fears, not according to nature as it really exists. Sages, we are told, dwell content, contentedly with senses controlled, unconquered by sense desires. But we who nod at this intelligence make haste to be conquered 
to surrender to sensory influx, to soak ourselves in all kinds of experience in hopes of arousing agreeable feelings. What is this alluring grasp at life after all? Just nama and rupa, mental and material factors perpetually arising and vanishing. We perceive the world through the operation of the six sense bases of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Each internal sense base has its corresponding object or external sense base. The eye in visible forms, the ear in sounds, the nose in odors, the tongue in flavors, the body in tangible objects, the mind in insights. Losing you, Lori. You're turning your head, Lori. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Each internal sense base has its corresponding object or external sense base. The eye and visible forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and flavors, the body and tangible objects, the mind and mental objects. When forms contact the eye, visual consciousness arises. When sound contact the ear, when sounds contact the ear, auditory consciousness arises. Likewise, when appropriate objects engage the other sense bases, <clears throat> there arise smell consciousness, taste consciousness, touch consciousness, and mental consciousness. Analyzed in this way, there are six types of consciousness not the comprehensive single one we imagine as a self or entity. And each one occurs through the operation of a particular sense faculty. Our experience, our perceiving and knowing is thus not monolithic, but various, dependent, conditioned, dynamic, flashing up in a continuous stream of events. How then might we confront this stream without being overwhelmed with confusion? The Buddha advised one question to train himself in this way. In the seen, there will be merely what is seen. In the heard, there will be merely what is heard. In the sensed, there will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized, there will be merely what is cognized. Udana 1.10. This means that all sensory impressions on eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind should be noted factually as what they are in themselves as distinct phenomena, not worked by liking or disliking, not embroidered with name and adjuncts. The careful thinker, when considering objects, tries to understand the compounded, changing nature of phenomenal reality, knowing that all elements are empty of self. When the season changes and we are free from liberty, Lifty destruction, we can make out the prosite wood and earth that support the forest, the rigging for the green illusion. In the, if we look closely enough into those bare trees and shrubs, we would find more, sh more sham, more artifice, more confounding. We must try not to be thrown off by the marvels of appearance, but to investigate deeper reality, not just with intellect. Though intellect has its place, but with the intuition of mindfulness, which reaches past bumbling cognitation, 
cogitation. Uh -huh. Cogitation, right. Cogitation uh -huh. and theorize, um, theorizing and deals with events directly. In the scene, there will be just what is seen. In the heard, just what is heard. This is how we can train the mind, how we can make possible the arising of insight. Hmm. Uh, there are lessons to be read in the destitution of the forest, in the fragility of all these branches, in the sodden leaves underfoot, in the cold, massive earth. But such lessons of impermanence and emptiness are only signposts on the path. They are not the goal. Ultimate truth is experienced and understood directly, not assembled by logic, not composed by imagination. With the exercise of reason, the, the contemplative person strengthens his mind for intuitive discovery when insight will bloom. The world out there is not remote and inaccessible, but right here in this fathom-long body with its perceptions and thoughts. And this world is ultimately understood and transcended, not by theoretical sophistication, not, not by whipped-up trances, but by steady, calm attention to the messengers of sense. We cannot arrange to perceive only what is delightful, but we can discipline our senses for the true comprehension of whatever appears. With a mind put to work, not on fantasies, but facts, we can find out the shape of the scene around us and realize the steps we must yet take for our safety and freedom. The air of this transparent day, moved by influences beyond itself, begins to pour across the sunny hills and sway the topmost branches of the woods. We hear a sighing in the twigs and a groaning of the big limbs. Woody vines swing stiffly. A crow calls raggedly. A squirrel jumps from oak to beech and we sigh and stir. Change breaks up all static dreams. What sort of peace is it that depends on flukes of good fortune? Shall we not try to earn a firmer peace? Let the elements dance through our senses as they will. Let us feel what we feel, but nonetheless try to stay detached from all that. The world reels by in a tempest, but must we run after it? Might we not keep patient in the face of the six wild messengers? A burning stick twirled in the night produces the illusion of a fiery script, but the watchful mind suffers no attachment to illusion. Seeing the script, the red coal, the twirling stick, and the boundless tumult of nature around them all. It was very evocative. Yes. Um, chapter 14, Four Elements. On this summer afternoon in the city, we have hurried on business through corridors and offices, down shaded pavements and across glaring plazas and avenues, with our thoughts scrambling ahead of our feet toward the next appointment or duty. Harried and intent, we lean forward in our deliberate march, sorting our plans as we make our way deftly through crowds. Now we pause for a streetlight, now we step out and go on, seeking the shortest route. A city park lies in our way, and we will cross it, 
settling on the way, if we can, a few details of what we need to do at our next stop. But the park is wide and the rhythm of walking has time to soften our impetuousness. And we find looking up with surprise that today the hot wind romps around us and the sun flashes in our eyes in refreshing vigor. Here we reflect is the world, vivid, concrete, bustling with shapes and forces, perceptible, perceptible, perceptible tactile material. And here too is this breathing human body, another moving shape amid shapes, cognizable through our senses, and real if we can call anything real among all these moats and masses. The park is busy this afternoon with office workers leisurely returning from lunch breaks and young people playing ball or jogging on dusty pathways, and children running and shrieking through the playgrounds or dashing about tugging on the strings of kites. The bordering streaks clatter with traffic while across the sky drift big bulbous clouds, stately, hilarious, and ever-changing. He, he seems to have two personalities. One that is in love with observation and nature and seeing things, and then the other is this Buddhist thing. This, the Puritan freak? Yeah, yeah. And, and they don't seem to fit together as one person. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, this whole two, two paragraphs, these are all the things I miss. Yeah. Going around and seeing people and children. It seems like in the chapters where he's, it's more like poetry. Uh -huh. And um, and then there's other times when he's writing, it's more like when he's talking about the moral moralistic view and all that. Uh -huh. It's just, those gotcha. are the two, those are the two senses I get about his, his yeah. writing. Yeah. But interestingly enough, there's not ever any other people. So um, it's not, there's nothing in what he's writing that's relational with other people. It's yeah, he's never mentioned another person. No, and he keeps saying we, but I mean, where, where is the, <laughs> you know, where's the, where's the we? Well, maybe it's his split personalities. It's a, it's a kind of rhetorical device that's supposed to, I think, include the reader in what he's experiencing. Well, isn't he practicing in the forest monk tradition? You know, yeah. very hermit-like. So. Yeah. I, sp I spent, a, he went, he went to Dartmouth College and Linda and I spent a summer there. It was about 50 years ago, um, like 20 miles from there. And that was our, our entertainment is to go to Dartmouth College and go to a film series or something. So I'm visualizing all this stuff that he's talking about. I was right there. Which is kind of neat. Ah. And also the the beginning of the fall, which is when we left. Right. Um, okay. We feel ourselves expand a little in the bluff physicality of the summer afternoon, pleased by the coarseness of life in the open sunlight. Shall we recover now some lost balance? Where were we? Where were we in the morning before our attention ran away? Were we not meaning to be more mindful 
to contemplate phenomena in the present moment as they swelled and popped like bubbles. But even as we stride and breathe more easily now, trying to get back down from fantasy to the earth again, the intensity of the surrounding scene raises a question. Have we ever really understood this realm of matter? Or have we, whenever we peered and scratched at it, used it simply as a gateway into intangible realms of feeling and concept, leaping at once from a simple impression to an ornate mental construction. Let us slow down a little more here. Let us not be content with surfaces. The wind ruffles, ruffled trees, the plump clouds, the grass whisking against the shoe and the feet, apparently ours, that carry our weight. What are they, in fact, and how should we regard them? All right. That's our questions of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Um, we're, we're, we'll close in on the end of this in the next two or three weeks, probably. Um, so I'm thinking uh, that our next book will be the... Uh, Playing, playing a little bit with koans in the Guo Gu book. Um, so Guo Gu book, what? Guo Gu is the teacher. He is Sheng Yan's uh, Dharma oh. successor. That's right. The gateless gate. Yeah. We should probably order that now, huh? I would think that would be a good idea. Yeah. So the gateless gate. Correct? And we're going to have a little bit different format with that book. So we're just going to take one koan a week and I have a little bit different structure in mind for how we do it. Oui. Yeah. So it should be, uh, should be good. And we can, that way we can really take our time. It's going to take us a long time to get through the book that way, but, um, but I don't like to rush through koans. That's, that's uh. sense to me. So, um, so I have a little um, idea of a set of activities for playing with these koans. Good. All right. Yep. Have a wonderful evening. So uh -huh. it's great to see all of you. Take care. Peg, it's the Gateless Gate by who? Guo Gu. G U O. And then it's, the last name is Gu, G U. Okay. Thank you. Chinese. He's, he's in Tallahassee. I'm glad you clarified that because there's a few. There's a one by Ikai, one by Mulan. Yeah. So it's yeah. Popular title. But this was passing through the gateless boundaries, right? Uh, hold on, I'll tell you in just a second here. I think that's what she said. Passing through the gateless oh. boundaries. Could you tell me again the, uh, the author of the book? Yeah, she's, I think, going to tell us here in just a second. Um, so I'll give you, um, uh, uh, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier. Barrier. Uh-huh. And he has a book coming out called The Essence of Chan. It won't be out until sometime in October. Yeah, that's the book, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier.
Oh, I see. Thank you. It's 48 koans, so. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try this format for a little bit and see if this is a good way to proceed. Okay? Sounds good. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll send something out to the spirit so other people can join us if they're interested. Okay. All right. Thank Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye.